So today we're continuing the Summer Psalter series. Uh, it's a five-week sermon series, and we're on week three. So logically, we're going to talk about book four. So uh, buckle your seatbelts again, as I said. Um, we're just going to jump right into it. But how many of you guys, raise your hands, guys and girls, have you heard a sermon on the Psalms already? Like in this series, like you've been here for church for that. Surprisingly few. Okay, well, this is going to be a shocker because we're like jumping way ahead here. So uh, you're going you're gonna to get a catch-up class real quick. But today, uh, as we continue the Summer Salter series, something that I wanted to mention is some of you might be wondering, why is there a tent and like a chair and a barbecue back here? Anybody wondering why that's there? Yeah, a couple people. More people are wondering why it's here than they said they've heard a sermon. So, <laughs> so that's a good start. Uh, it's here because uh, it's supposed to remind you of our summer series. It's stage design, right? It kind of matches the slide here and stuff. So uh, it's not, I know I've heard the questions. It's not because Pastor Yasmin's so holy that she's sleeping on the stage throughout the week. Okay, that's not what's happening. You can let it go. She's sleeping at home, I assume. But it's just a stage design. And today, Today, as we continue the series, we're going to get into um, Psalm 91. If you have Bibles, you can open up there. I see some nods of recognition. How many of us have heard Psalm 91 before or heard of it? Good. Okay. Awesome. Great. Very popular psalm. Very popular. And today we get to take a little bit of a closer look at it, and we get to have... Uh, some fresh interaction. I'm hoping that's what we get out of it, is some fresh interaction with Psalm 91. Just before we read Psalm 91, it'll come up on the screen in two sections here in a minute when I start reading it. But just before we read it, let's just pray that God would help us to absorb and to be engaged as, as we learn and interact tonight. God, I'm just so thankful that you give us your word. You give us things to learn. You give us uh, such a rich history of our faith and God, in, in this large compilation of the Psalms, there's so many lessons, so many teachings, and uh, so much to learn about ourselves and you, in our humanity, and in our interaction with you, the divine. And so as we go into this, and as we learn tonight, I pray that everything that's said would be honoring to you. God, would this message be one that is truthful and honest to your heart through scripture, and uh, just give us ears to hear what, what you would say through it. Amen. Nice, a couple of you. That's good. People are shy, hey? That's good. Uh, we. What did you say? Somebody said, so, what did you say? Yes, you're welcome. Um, Psalm 91. I like it, by the way. More of that, please. A little bit more shouting back would be good. A little bit more response. Don't be afraid. You. I can see you. You can see me. So you don't have to pretend like we can't talk to each other. Psalm 91. It goes like this on the, on the screen and in front of you if you have a Bible. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God and I trust him. For he will rescue you from every trap and protect you from deadly disease. He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. Don't be afraid of the terrors in the night, nor the arrow that flies in the day. 
Do not dread the disease that stalks in darkness, nor the disaster that strikes at midday. Though a thousand fall at your side, though 10,000 are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Just open your eyes and see how the wicked are punished. Verse 9, if you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you. No plague will come near your home, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You, you will trample upon lions and cobras. You will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation. Wow, huh? Right? Wow. Okay, nobody's excited about this. <laughs> uh, I think that's a, it's a pretty whopper of a psalm, you know? There's a whole lot in there that's talking about, you know, how great God is, how mighty he is. And uh, this is a psalm that most of you or lots of you are probably familiar with if you've been around church because it's something that we have claimed in a lot of different circumstances and traditions. There's been a lot of interaction with Psalm 91 over the years. As I read through Psalm 91, there's something that occurs to me, though, that gives me pause. I, I start reading through the psalm and I'm like, yeah, this is my stuff. This is great. Those who live in the shelter of the most high, we will be comforted forever. You know, like there's no, there's no sickness. There's no uh, arrow. There's no lion that could hurt us. There's like all this bolstering, encouraging stuff. Uh, and then sometimes I find that there's a little bit of maybe a discrepancy in some of these verses. As I'm reading, um, I read, they will hold you up, verse 12, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. And I think, I think I remember hurting my foot on a stone before. Anybody else, you ever stub your toe? Quick aside about stubbing your toe, what is up with the pinky toe? It's like every single nerve in your body terminates in that little gob of flesh. And once you get a little bit too cozy with the corner of the sofa, boom. Reminder, pain, screaming, anguish, blood, gnashing of teeth. You know, it's like you've entered a level of hell when you stub your toe. You know what I mean? But uh, here, I, I definitely have a, a strong memory of doing that multiple times. Just ask Alyssa. It's like the whole neighborhood knows when I stub my toe. It's like the most dramatic thing that could possibly happen. Isn't that right, Alyssa? It is, yes. So I seem to recall stubbing my toe. I'm a little bit confused, maybe. So when I read this and it says... If I'm making the Lord my refuge, I'll be held up so I don't even dash my foot. I don't know. It seems like a little bit of a discrepancy. And it can continue a little bit. It says that uh, no disease will come near your house. Has anybody been sick before? surprisingly few okay i'm starting to think from the beginning you guys just haven't been responding i'm wondering if you've all heard sermons in this series before let's try this again how many of you have been sick before if you haven't somebody pin them down grab a vial of their blood they've got the cure for something but we have all been sick before isn't that right were you sick when you believed in god when you had your your faith in god yes okay so there seems to be a little bit of an incongruity here, a little bit of an inconsistency, and it makes me wonder. I sit here and I think, okay, 
this sounds great, but I can't help but wonder what's going on. In fact, there have been times that this psalm has been used in a way to tell people, oh, you're sick. Put your faith in God, it'll be gone. Don't worry about it. All you need is more faith and it'll be gone. You don't even have to, you don't even have to go to the doctor. There have been times where uh, people have handled live snakes because it says you'll walk on top of lions and serpents. How many of you guys have walked on a lion before? I don't, I don't, I don't think so, right? I don't think that uh, the psalm is encouraging us to literally walk on top of lions and crush them with our feet. So what's happening? What's going on here? Well, the interesting thing is that when we come into Scripture, sometimes we have this really nasty habit of taking something out of the Bible, reading it, plucking out of its context, and then saying, all right, I'm going to develop a whole theology based around that verse. So we read something like, so let's say you read the, you won't even dash your foot on a stone. We develop a real strong theology about we're the non-toe stubbers. It's impossible because it says it in the Bible. And if you stub your toe, you don't have enough faith. We can kind of be quirky this way where we pull things out of their context and start to do that. But it makes me wonder, what is the context of Psalm 91? How do we make sense of this? Why is it written here? Why is it in the Bible if we're not supposed to read it and be like, ah, that's, that's how it works. Well, there's an interesting thing about scripture, which is that not all of it is literal. Not all of it is meant to be literally taken at face value and then directly applied to our lives. We believe that the scripture is alive and living. We believe that it's something that continually can teach us and we can grow in it and grow with it. But it's not something that we can just take out a portion and kind of like wrangle it around, maybe even snap it over our knee and fit it into what we want it to fit into. It takes a little bit of understanding to understand scripture. Did you know that the Bible has many genres of text contained within it? Yeah, a few of us. Okay, you, you guys can raise your hand or say yes or whatever. Um, it's, uh, yeah, thank you, Paul. This is like the fifth time I've mentioned this. Don't be afraid. You can answer. It's okay. We're safe here, all right? If you get uncomfortable, I don't know. You could run out the back door if you want to. There's multiple genres of literature in the Bible. There's prophetic there's narrative, there's poetic, there's apocalyptic. That sounds pretty cool, except it's not that cool. It's kind of boring and confusing. Uh, there's wisdom literature, etc. It keeps going. There's the epistles, letters. And knowing the genre that we're reading is actually a really important part of how we interact with Scripture. It's actually really, really important to how we actually help uh, use it to develop our thoughts on God and our thoughts on life and how we view this perspective of our faith. The Psalms were actually written like somewhere between 300,000 and 250,000 years ago over a span of like five centuries. Wait, did I say the wrong number? Yeah, okay, no, wait, I meant to say 3,000, okay? Calm down, we're not talking, <laughs> yeah, okay. Just forget, I forget, between 3,000 and 2,500 years ago. Does that make more sense, Jordan? That's an okay thing to say? 
Okay. He's on board. So if I'm wrong at this point, now it's his fault, okay? But between 3,000, it's written over centuries, centuries of text compiled into these five books of the Psalms. And so these, these books are really old and like have been translated through multiple languages to get to us. And they're compiled together, written from different eras. Can you imagine? Think from now today, think 300 years ago. How different was the world 300 years ago? Okay, so now imagine 2,000 years ago, how different the world was 300 years ago from that. You get what I'm saying. This is a complicated and complex book. And so when we come to it, we need to take all the cues we can get. One of these is genre. We need to pay attention to the genre. Let me just make a modern example out of uh, a genre of literature. Let's say uh, Evan's writing some poems about Danielle real cutesy stuff. It's just his style. That's how he is. He's writing some poems, and in it he says, your sunflower eyes strike my very soul. Ooh, moves. Nice moves, Evan. So uh, we read this. Imagine now you were to just take that at face value and be like, sunflower eyes, I hope I never see her. That is crazy. Sunflowers for eyes? That's kind of creepy. I don't want to see somebody with, it's like Rick and Morty or something. You know, their eyes are like these weird holes with like little folds in them and stuff. Not that I've ever seen that show. You shouldn't either, probably. But the sunflower eyes, right? We don't take these things literally. We don't take these things right at face value where we're like, oh, and, and she strikes his soul. What is she, a murderer? No, okay? We don't take these things at face value. And so when we go into the Psalms, we need to understand what genre are we dealing with? How are we reading this? What are we taking this as? So let's just... Let's, let's cut the stuff here real quick. I had a phone call with Dr. Jeremy Quinn Martini. Bet you didn't know his middle name was Quinn, did you? But now you do, and the internet does, and it's out there forever. Dr. J.Q. Martini gave me this cool sheet. Why don't we throw it up here so you can see? He gave me two sheets that he uses in his classes. He teaches Bible study methods at, at Horizon Bible and College Seminary, where he is the Presidente. And he gave me these sheets, and I marked them up so that I could kind of use them for my own purposes. But he's got these really cool interpreting a biblical passage sheets that he uses in his class. And I took these, and I wanted to use them so that I could really identify and point out how we're going to identify what Psalm 91 is. And the thing that we identified is that, so first of all, um, this is like... Hopefully, if you went to Bible college or something, you already know this, but like we're going through this so we can work on how to how to take this from from the very bottom so you could do this yourself. The genre of poetry and the genre of wisdom are both noted inside of Psalm 91 together. So there's actually even a mixing of genres, not just a singular one present. Now, let's go to the next slide and let's just look at how Psalm 91 presents itself as poetry, as poetic literature. It uses multiple examples of Hebrew po uh, poetry. The first one is parallelism, which is, uh, I'm kind of like simplifying here, but the repetition to reinforce, develop, and or intensify a previous line. Did you notice in the Psalm any repetition? Yes. Yeah, okay, so present, check it off, all right? There's some stuff in here where it says, you will trample upon lions and cobras, uh, you will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. It's like, okay, he's either repeating himself or this is here on purpose. It's part of the poetic literature. Figurative imagery. We see God's protective wings, right? God described as having a wings. He, he's not necessarily a giant chicken in the sky, though. It's figuratively flying arrows, 
Uh, God is a shelter. God isn't a literal house, but he is a shelter. Walking on lions. This is the thing that really gets me because I'm like, if somebody could pull that off, like that would be pretty cool, right? But it's figurative imagery. We're not talking about people literally walking on top of lions. And then if we look onto the next slide here, we've got wisdom literature. Oh, actually, back it up. Sorry, I missed Dr. Martini's quote, which is a good one. So why don't we back up one more slide? Where Dr. Martini in our conversation, or actually in the sheets, he was uh, pointing this out. He said, read poetic language poetically. Don't force figurative images into literalist molds. Biblical poetry is meant to help us connect with God and express our joy and thanks to him honestly. I think you could even honestly, uh, honestly, I think you could even simplify that further by saying, help us connect with God and express ourselves honestly, period. Express ourselves in many different ways. Okay, wisdom literature. Let's see how wisdom literature has to do with Psalm 91. Dr. Jeremy Quinn Martini also states, Hebrew wisdom is about ordering life according to God's intended order of the world. Treat wisdom as general principles and not promises. There will be exceptions. And then we see the connection wisdom in Psalm 91. This connection of wisdom literature there is that it is giving us the wisdom to put our faith in God. So two pieces present in one place. And the reason that I bring this up is because as we read this, we need to start to understand that we are having general principles and not promises portrayed to us. We are not necessarily having guaranteed promises where if you put your faith in God, your house won't get COVID. That's not what the scripture is saying. And if we try to make it say that, we're going to end up pretty confused and disappointed at different times. So let's get, thank you. So let's get going. And I want to take us to kind of a, a wild point here for me. When we consider the context of a passage, part of understanding uh, the context is the genre. It's part of understanding um, what literary devices are being used so that we can really actually take what we need out of it. But we also look at where this scripture is in the body that it's included in. And so in the Psalms, Psalm 91 is the second Psalm in book four. It is like the beginning of the fourth book of Psalms. But the third book of Psalms is a book that's written, my, my dear wife pointed this out to me, is written from an exilic perspective or compiled from an exilic perspective. Thank you, I said the right word. It is compiled, exilic meaning in exile. It's compiled from the perspective of Israel being in exile, being completely taken over, being the Babylonian exile, for example, being uh, completely occupied, taken over, free will is gone. And uh, the book three takes that. Book three ends on Psalm 89, just before book four starts. Let's just take a look at 89. I don't have it on the screen. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's a lot longer. But this is part of the context. Um, before we read it, I was reading a commentary on 91. And the commentary was saying 91 has 
lots of applications. There's lots of different instances of people claiming Psalm 91 through different faith tradition, timeline, and all of this. But something that is considered by the, what is it, new interpreters. I'm not going to be able to remember the name of the commentary. If you want the commentary, I'll give it to you later. Talking about how Psalm 89 to 91 should be viewed as a sort of clump together. 89 takes place, the book ends, 90 and 91 continue, not as an answer to 89, but a continuation from that point. So where is that point? What are we looking at? 89. The first bunch of Psalm 89 is all about God's unfailing love, talking about God's covenant with David, the psalmist who, just as a side note, is named Ethan. Pretty, pretty groovy, right? Yeah. The psalmist Ethan is saying, uh, God, you'll be on your throne for all eternity. Lord, you have the heaven's armies. There's no one as mighty as you. You rule the oceans. You crush a great sea monster. Long ago, you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, and you've made a covenant with, with us, and you will not desert our covenant. Uh, and it's just talking about God's faithfulness until there's an interlude at verse 37. You'll see it says, it will be as eternal. Or actually, let's go from 36. His dynasty will go on forever. His kingdom will endure as the sun, talking about the, the monarch of Israel. It will be as eternal as the moon, my faithful witness in the sky interlude. Pause. It'll say it in your Bible. Pause. Wait a second. And then the psalmist Ethan picks up again and he says this. But now you have rejected him and cast him off. You are angry with your anointed king. You have renounced your covenant with him. You have thrown his crown into the dust. You have broken down the walls protecting him and ruined every fort defending him. Everyone who comes along has robbed him and he has become a joke to his neighbors. You have strengthened his armies and made them all rejoice. Enemies, not armies. <laughs> you strengthened his enemies and made them all rejoice. You've made his sword useless and refused to help him in battle. You have ended his splendor and overturned his throne. You have made him old before his time and publicly disgraced him. Interlude. <laughs> the psalmist Ethan kind of just went off here, okay? We were all on board, just like in Psalm 91, we're like, good stuff, good stuff. And then the psalmist is like, and you rejected us! And just out of nowhere. And then there's this dramatic pause. We're supposed to have a moment of silence before we keep reading. And he says, Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever? How long will your anger burn like fire? Remember how short my life is, how empty and futile this human existence. No one can live forever. All will die. No one can escape the power of the grave. Interlude. Lord, where is your unfailing love? You promised it to David with a faithful pledge. Consider, Lord, how your servants are disgraced. I carry in my heart the insults of so many people. Your enemies have mocked me, O Lord. They mock your anointed king wherever he goes. Praise the Lord forever. Amen. What is going on, you guys? What is going on? Somebody help this man. He's going through stuff. We read this, and we get a very different picture than what we're picking up at the beginning of book four. The psalmist absolutely flies off the chain, is expressing very vocal doubt in God. By the way, uh, if you're uncomfortable with that, that's good. Uh, but it's in the Bible. 
It's in there. I just read it. He's absolutely enraged and disgraced, disappointed, let down, disillusioned, left in the darkness. And where's the answer? Where's the call to this? Praise the Lord forever. Amen. It's just, a, it's just an ending. It's just an ending that they would have used in their Psalms. There's no response. There's no, but he worked it out in the end and everything's okay. We're left on this dagger's edge of a cliffhanger. We're left in this moment of dryness and despair. This, this mentality of exile and absolute desertion. And as we come out of that, we start to read Psalm 90, which is pretty similar to Psalm 91 in a lot of ways, mirrors it. And Psalm 91. Why? Why are these close together like this? You might say, well, it's a different book. It changes the perspective. But this is where this is compiled like this on purpose. These Psalms are put in this order for a reason. They're not just thrown together. It's like, I don't know, put in the nice one after that because everybody's going to be bummed out. (laughs) This is what we're going to focus on here today. I want to talk a little bit about how Psalm 91, as we understand it as wisdom poetry, as we understand its genre, and we look at the context it's in, I want to take a minute to talk about why we see this unanswered season of darkness leading right up to it and how we deal with that. This is the crux of our discussion today. I want to talk about what faith in the midst of darkness looks like. Faith in the midst of darkness. I just want to say that this is not something we should try to cover up. This pain and this this grief, this sorrow and anguish of desertion, it's not something we should try to cover, but something that we should see embraced as we see it embraced in scripture as a harsh reality of living in the world that we live in. We are so often tempted to try and wrap up every mystery, every struggle, every doubt of our lives and put a pretty bow on it to make us feel better. Nothing against pretty bows. And I get the appeal of that. I get that we want to have answers, that we want to have a reason, that we want to have an answer when we're sitting in the darkness facing doubts. God, do you even care about me? Do you even see what I'm going through? You said that you were going to be there, and now I'm lost in the dark. We need to actually take a minute here and look at this example of Psalm 89. And how it closes out book three and look into how it actually leads into Psalm 91 and what it means for us. But as we talk about this, I just want to encourage you that we should work together tonight or today, whenever you're watching, to resist this urge to make everything neat and orderly. Okay, that's the first challenge of tonight's message. Resist the urge to try and tie it all up nicely and have an answer for it because simply... Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes that's not how life is going to come across for us. So please hear my heart before we go any further. Until we accept the fact, the reality, that we will walk in darkness in our lives, and we won't have an answer, then we can't actually talk about what our faith will look like in that darkness. If we refuse to acknowledge it, if we refuse to look at it, 
we can actually have this discussion about faith in the midst of darkness. Now, through, through reading about this, researching about it, I tried to have conversations with people. Usually, uh, this kind of just ends up coming out in random conversations uh, and talking with pastors on staff and stuff. But I was, uh, I was curious to hear what my papa said. I mentioned him earlier in the ordination section. He's been an ordained minister for like 25 years. He's pastored churches. He's currently a chaplain in Ontario at a jail. And so I trust this man. He's given me a lot of good advice over the years, and I'm starting to get old enough that I can actually listen to him. So I called him, and I asked him, what would it mean, what would, what would happen to a church that refused to acknowledge its suffering and pain? What would happen to a church if collectively or individually, people refused to acknowledge the suffering and pain in their lives? And then, here's what he said. He said, that would be terrible. That would stunt your growth as a church. That's a church killer. And he said that he can't imagine a church without suffering and wondered how a church that doesn't acknowledge suffering is supposed to model grace and even understand grace if we can't embrace suffering. Wow, that's pretty cool. Thanks, Pops. That's some good stuff. I also had a conversation with my good friend, Reverend Jordan. <laughs> it, 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 has to, it has to happen. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Rev Jordan, uh, we, had a, we had a casual conversation. Did you start chanting for Jordan? I agree. Thank you, Paul. Yeah, we should have more of that. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Yeah, okay. All right. Yeah. He's a reverend, so uh, I had a casual conversation with him earlier this week in the hallway, kind of these water cooler conversations. We end up loitering by each other's doors as we talk, and uh, we kind of were just talking about some harder things in life, and we, we started talking about how the reality is is that we know people who just, you can't land somewhere without an answer. You can't just be somewhere without knowing the solution, and how challenging that can be for different people how that can be hard in a season of life where you're just like, I don't know, no place to hang your hat, as it were. And uh, yeah, always good conversations in the office. But in both of these conversations, we address the problem of a sloppy approach to suffering. And my concern becomes that we can actually have a dangerously vapid theology of suffering meaning like a dangerously underdeveloped and misunderstood theology, like how we understand God interacts with us in it, theology of suffering. And when I read Psalm 89, just before 91, I just can't help but think, this is like, this is, this is talking about the dark soul of the night. This is talking about absolute hopelessness and doubt in everything. An interesting thing is that when we come into Psalm 91 and we, we start reading it, there's no answer to those questions. It doesn't go back and say, and let me address that other doubt really quick and clean that up for you. There's no bow being tied on this topic. It's actually just a continuation. And it, it starts talking about those who run to God, who go to God when there's flaming arrows, who go to God when there's deadly disease, who cling to God and go under his, they need armor, they're under his wings, the terrors of the night pursue them. This isn't an image of somebody who's just living the good life, kicking their feet up, not a worry in the world. This is the image of someone who's tormented, who's suffering, who's being persecuted, who's not having a good time. And the Psalm never says anything about how to fix those problems. 
it picks up from where 89 left off from this place of depravity and emptiness. And what does it do? It tells us to put our faith into God, to run to God, to cling to God in the darkness. As we continue to talk about this, I just want you to remember and hopefully embrace this with me that that does not mean an answer. Clinging to God does not mean that we get to understand why or what's happening or when it's going to stop. Clinging to God is faith in darkness. It's faith when things don't make sense and we don't understand. My shoes have just come untied. Just give me a second here. Those shoes really distracted me. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, so <laughs> as we look at this, um, this is, this is where the, the rubber hits the road. This is where it matters to us, okay? We're going to talk about now how that actually acts out for us. A part of context that matters is how we read it through the lens of Christ. Now we live in a time where we have the benefit of looking back at the Psalms and we get to see, so how did Christ interact with this? An interesting thing to note as a quick aside is that the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4 the tempter, Satan, used what? Psalm 91 to tempt Christ. He took him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, jump off. God won't let you hurt your foot. That's literally, he used that. He used the toe stub example. And Jesus says, no, I don't, I don't, uh, oh, what's the word? I don't, uh, oh, what's the word? Oh my goodness, what is it? Test. Who said it? Who said it? Thank you. Yes. I don't. He said, no, I don't test God. I don't test him. It's interesting to see that even the enemy, the tempter, Satan was trying to use this, mis, misuse it, twist it around to try and tempt Jesus. But as a response, we get to look through the lens of Christ. We get to look back and we get to say, okay, why, how does this make sense? How do we have faith in the darkness like Psalm 91 is com com like commanding us to when it says cling to God, run to God in the darkness? How do we do that? What does that look like? What does it mean? And as we look through the lens of Christ, there's one really cool example, which is uh, in Matthew chapter 7. At the end of the chapter, I'm not going to read it specifically. You can flip to Matthew chapter 7 if you want to look at it. But it's the parable of the builders, and it's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if you listen to everything I just said, if you take all my teaching and you listen, then it's like you're building your house on a rock. But if you hear everything I'm saying and you forget it and you ignore it, it's like you're building your house on sand. How many of you guys have heard that before? Yeah? Nice. Responsiveness is going up. We, we get this imagery of the rock and the sand. But the thing that's similar between the two in the sermon is very instructive to us tonight. So pay attention to this. The thing that is similar between the two is that in both cases, a crazy storm comes through. An absolute barn destroyer. Something that just rips through and decimates the house on the sand because the foundation isn't strong. And the house on the rock goes through the exact same storm. The difference is it was able to stand because of its foundation. Now, this is interesting because when we take that and we understand that what Jesus is trying to tell us is that 
These storms in life come no matter what. These storms come to everybody, even the faithful to God. You say, well, I built my house on the rock, so I should be good. I should be able to walk on the lines. I should be able to avoid stubbing my toe. I should be free from disease. We, we can say these things. But what Jesus is saying is actually, even if you build your house on the rock, those storms are coming. Those storms are going to hit you. They're going to afflict you. There are going to be these times of darkness and despair. There are going to be times and seasons of hopelessness of not having an answer of direction in the middle of that storm. But what Christ says is very important. That foundation, that foundation of God, of Christ's teaching, that's the difference maker. That's the thing that's going to get us through. It's not an answer. It doesn't answer to why the storm came. It doesn't say why the storm is so hard and why it hurts so much. But it's the thing that kept the house up through it. There's another interesting parallel to this in Hebrews 11. And again, I'm not going to read it, but you can flip to it if you want to. Hebrews 11, the author is writing to a church that's persecuted. And the author is encouraging this church by saying, look at these examples. Look at Abraham. And he starts recalling all these, these heroes of the faith. And he starts saying, he or she starts saying, look at them. They went through it. They went through the craziest times and they didn't even get the satisfaction of seeing what happened at the end. They didn't get the satisfaction of having a nice bow on it to understand why it all happened. But they made it through and now they're heroes of the faith. And this example, again, is another edification for us as we come to this passage and we look at this. We get to read this from the perspective of, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Does it make you afraid to acknowledge your doubt in God? Does it make you uncomfortable to read Psalm 89 and think, I kind of get it. Where's God? Where's he been in this time of silence? Where's he been as everything in my life has been torn from me? Where's he been when I'm sitting here asking for help? Does it scare you to ask that? Does it scare you to think about that, to allow yourself to feel that? Tonight, as we go into a time of response, I want us to look at this from the perspective of not looking for the answer, but a perspective of working on that faith in the darkness. Because when we choose to put our faith in God through the darkness, we are believing and hoping that suffering is not the closed door to God's will in our life. Suffering isn't the end. Pain isn't the end to what God is going to do through us, in us, around us. Look at the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11. Look at what Jesus says. The storm passes. The storm comes by. I don't know when we see it, if we see it in our lifetime. But let's take time to reflect on that. And this song is really my concluding point, actually. <laughs> Firm foundation, which the worship team has been good enough to play. As we sing this song, it talks about the imagery of that closure to the Sermon on the Mount, building our house on God, on Christ. And I want us to just take some time. I, this, this, like, it's pretty solemn, right? Like, I've, I've kind of like bummed some of you out. I can see it. You guys are like, I'm excited. 91's my favorite psalm. And it's a, <laughs> but this is the purpose of tonight is a spiritual exercise. Let's work on our faith in the midst of darkness and let's contemplate 
what it means to cling to God when we're not getting an answer, when we don't get to know why, and when we don't see the end of things. So as the worship team starts playing right now, we're just going to listen to the words. I invite you to stay seated or stand if you would like to. You can read all the words along with them on the screen. And we're just going to take this time to reflect on what it really means for us to pursue God, to put our hope in God, even when we're in the midst of a dark time that has no answer. So let's do that now. <laughs> 